Hello, everyone. Welcome to Setter Talk. I am your host, Kyle Warren. Today, we're going to be talking about homing pigeons and how to take care of them and how to tie them in to your training with setters. Mostly what I want to really talk about is how to take care of your birds, some setup, and the way I felt that this would best be explained would be to kind of look at your 12-month plan. If you have listened to the introductory episode of Setter Talk, uh, you hear me talking a little bit about myself and my history with homing pigeons. Um, I'm a fourth generation pigeon flyer. I have birds, most of my birds uh, that I have in my several coops uh, at my home. I've had uh, their bloodlines in my family for over 75 years. So my Passion for pigeons runs uh, uh, nearly as deep as it as it does for the setters, and the outline that I give certainly is going to be let's say gold standard um, for care because these are racing pigeons. Um, they have and do compete anywhere from one hundred to six hundred miles, and weather permitting, they make those distances comfortably in a day, um, on a day, I should say. So let's go over um, uh, your 12-month plan. <clears throat> I like to start the 12-month plan in November. And the reason why that is, it's the quietest time of year. Um, usually uh, everybody's in their hunting season or getting towards the end of their hunting season. If you're in the northern half of the country, you're getting into the winter months. So you might not be as active uh, with your breeding program uh, and your training program. Uh, in regards to uh, the pigeons um, uh, and the training of the dogs at that time. So it's one of the quietest times of year and entering a quiet period uh, with the pigeons where my bird numbers are at the lowest point they are for the whole season. And what we're looking at at that time is I separate my males and my females, my cocks and my hens. Um, so the hens get a rest from the cockbirds driving them for eggs all the time. So if we want to have a, a, a gold standard uh, loft setup, if you think of perhaps a prefab mini barn where you have um, uh, an 8x12 building. In an 8x12 building, uh, you could make three 4x8 foot sections. In that size loft, what you would do is make one of the four by eight sections uh, a breeding loft where on we'll say there's a front and back wall and the long wall so on one of the on the back long wall you would have your nesting boxes and you can either uh, make these yourself obviously or if you want to buy standard uh, prefabbed uh, uh, pigeon nesting boxes you could do so uh, some great points of reference for pigeon supplies in general I'll give you three, um, Foy's Pigeon Supply, uh, Global Pigeon Supply, and Jed's Pigeon Supply are all great companies to deal with uh, depending upon where you are in the country and um, to what extent you want to get pigeon-specific uh, items, whether we're talking medications, uh, loft supplies, including breeding boxes, nest bowls, Scrapers, waterers, water heaters, um, uh, nesting material, bands. Uh, these are all 
all uh, places that I, I, I have used and used regularly and would definitely recommend that you check out in regards to the Pigeon Supply Department. And you can find all of them online at theirnames.com. So going back to the loft setup, uh, I have uh, several uh, 8x12 buildings with these three um, 4x8 sections. Uh, the And then I have uh, doors on both sides, uh, so I can open them up, and there are screen doors. So to allow for uh, a lot of ventilation uh, during the warmer weather, um, I can open it up that way. On the front end, I have uh, holes cut um, below a landing board, so all of the um, uh, each of the sections has a screen box that is uh, roughly three to four feet wide um, by two feet deep. Um, and I say two feet instead of perhaps three feet or more because you want to be able to reach in there and be able to grab them easily and not them exceed your, your reach. Um, <clears throat> I feel the best setup is the door that you use most often to walk into uh, should be uh, uh, what I would call the hen section. The center section would be the young bird section, which are birds that are born in that calendar year. And then the far section would be the breeding section where the cockbirds would live uh, uh, for 12 months out of the year. So there's off the front end of the, of the loft, there's a slightly sloped landing board that I like to have be roughly three feet wide. Um, and I have a window uh, that is fit um, in the middle of each of these three sections on the front. Um, I buy standard traps or stalls, as they're called, where the, there are bobs where the pigeons can go in but not go back out that fit very nicely uh, just with a, a wooden wedge inside these windows that I can open and close. Um, so I can choose which sections that I want to let out at any given time if I'm in that kind of situation. So further explaining the construction on the interior, um, the two interior walls that uh, create a center section that I've labeled as the young bird section is constructed out of furring strips. Um, and I'm just using some finishing nails with a two by four or two by three frame around the whole thing, making furring strip doors to separate. And each of those uh, furring strips are approximately uh, one and a half inches uh, apart, so pigeons can't fit between them. Um, but it provides maximum uh, uh, airflow throughout the coop. Uh, again, ventilation is very important. Just when we get to our colder temperatures, if you live in the northern half of the country, it's really important to try to prevent draft. Um, so the walk-in section is the hen section, and then we have the middle section, again, which we're calling the young bird section. Those two sections on the back wall, uh, I make uh, perches out of furring strips, uh, and I like to make them roughly uh, eight inches by eight, eight inches. So each uh, each perch that they can sit on. Um, and I'll just uh, tack them all together that way. And that gives them plenty of room to move around and not hit their tail feathers and stand up nice and tall um, and be very comfortable. Um, and then the last section um, uh, that you would walk into and through is the breeding section. And that's where the nest boxes would be against that back wall. Um, and that's where the cockbirds would be. 
So again, this, uh, this explanation is starting off with where these birds all are in November. Now, uh, the one other thing I would say about the loft construction, um, uh, over, as far as an overview, is make sure that the loft is also up off the ground a foot or two uh, to allow for air circulation under the building. Whether uh, all my buildings are those prefabbed Amish sheds, I find that to be the, um, the, the easiest way to just go with loft setup. Um, for myself here in the in the in the northeast um, in the northern part of the country, uh, people that are much further south and you know temperatures pretty much are always above freezing. Um, they do a little less wood construction sometimes in regards to the floor down there, and they might use metal grates um, so the uh, pigeon droppings fall through and they can just rake it out you know and remove it. Um, whereas if you're in the northern part of the country, as far as maintenance, you're either going to use like a mason trowel and a bucket and scrape the droppings uh, regularly, um, uh, put down hay or straw or corn cob bedding to try to make sure that that floor remains dry. Um, certainly, depending upon how dry your weather is, uh, you can certainly leave the droppings there uh, and allow that to, to be there. But um, animals are only as clean as you keep them. And certainly, um, you know, if we're talking uh, about health of a, a race team and uh, a bird dog training team, uh, we want them to be as healthy as they can. So it's best to try to keep their hygiene and their environment um, in that respect uh, as good as you can keep it. So with uh, the coming of November, you're going to uh, uh, take the young birds and at that point in time, they're sexually mature enough where you should be 95% certain whether they are cocks or hens. And at that time, if you are planning on keeping um, any of those for breeders, you can move them over into the, the cock section um, or if they're hens, you can move them over to the um, uh, hen section. And if you're undecided, you can just keep them in the middle. Uh, in the northern half of the country, uh, the old timers always said, as far as when your breeding season should start, should be sometimes, uh, you know, uh, after the first full moon in February. I've always kind of lived by that from a racing standpoint, um, and it's always served me well. Uh, that that really puts uh, the process uh, with birds uh, um, getting out uh, into the young bird section, usually the, the middle of March, which is a good age. Um, but the other thing that we should talk about is when to medicate in terms of your dewormers, your, you know, um, and your external, I'm sorry, your internal parasites. Uh, I usually do that uh, usually a few times a year. And November is one of the times that I do that where I'll uh, deworm uh, and uh, uh, give coccidia treatment for all of the birds in the entire loft. Um, that's also the time of year that I will vaccinate the birds again. Uh, they get vaccines for the paramyxovirus uh, and the um, uh, salmonella uh, that both uh, are administered um, uh, with the needle and syringe. Um, you can get the paramyxovirus, something called a Lasorda, which is uh, in the water, though um, I would strongly recommend that you do the um, uh, the vaccination um, <clears throat> rather than uh, the powdered uh, water supplement. 
So in this time where it's the quiet period, traditionally in the northern half of the country, with um, from November uh, moving on through into uh, breeding season, which we're going to say starts February sometime, uh, on the screen boxes, uh, I'll staple some heavy-duty plastic sheeting uh, to my boxes, again, just to cut down on the draft, so I'll still get... Uh, fresh air coming up from the bottom of the screen boxes and into the coops. And then on nice sunny days, I'll, I'll open up a door or the doors. Plus, not to mention that often in these uh, prefab types of buildings or that you make that yourself, um, you can have some gable end vents uh, in there as well as needed. Um, so you can button it up uh, so they're nice and warm. Uh, but um, by the same token, uh, have plenty of fresh air Uh Two-thirds of a pigeon's body are lungs and air sacs. So while obviously good fresh air is important for, you know, um, all animals, uh, most definitely an animal that, that has that extensive of uh, a respiratory system, uh, it's, it's very critical that um, uh, they have access to fresh air all the time, just not beating them on their face all the time. Uh, pigeon's body temperature is 107 degrees. Uh, so between all the feathers on their body and their and their uh, internal body temperature, uh, they handle exceptionally cold weather uh, very very well. Um, so you no need to heat your loft um, uh, at all. Um, you just want to make sure that they can get out of the sun. They always have water, and they have lots of airflow, which might include exhaust systems and fans in the summertime. Uh, regardless of where you live, even in the North Country, um, where we can still get our, our humidity, um, and certainly in the 80s and 90s occasionally, um, for sure. So while people in the southern half of the country uh, experience a very different uh, climate than us in the northern half of the country, my overall advice in regards to you know long-term planning, at least once you're set up and you're rolling, would still be the follow of this particular 12-month regimen. Um, there's different uh, hawk populations across the country, um, and certainly, you know, your your hunting seasons uh, run more into the uh, winter time. But usually in the south, by November, people are starting to hunt a bit, um, and uh, training is winding down anyhow. So your your pigeon workout um, might be lessening ever so slightly. Uh, you know, if you're a hunter, but, uh, this, this, this outline for 12 months, starting with November, again, it's going to be really helpful. I feel, um, so, uh, jumping ahead, um, to the breeding season, uh, here in the Northeast, uh, we get clobbered by hawks. I, I live very close to the Hudson river, which is like the New York state Thruway for hawk migration. So, uh, we have our resident hawks here. Uh, namely uh, our our gauche hawks um and then we get our fair share of cooper hawks that 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 come through and uh you know they're wolves of the sky they're very intelligent you got to learn to navigate them um hope that they move on change the time of the day um be out there uh with your birds you know if they're law flying uh one of the biggest mistakes that i feel uh people make and i try to advise this to everybody uh all my clients that that are you know, eager to start the puppy training process and they're getting pigeons or they have pigeons, I always ask them, how many do you have, whether we're talking for breeders or, you know, uh, how many did you buy if they're, if we're talking about uh, settling uh, some uh, young birds that are, you know, one or a couple months old. Uh, 
And overall, I always feel people never have enough pigeons. Um, if you get an exceptionally uh, uh, dedicated territorial hawk, um, again, often the gash hawks, but um, they'll stay there and they don't need to eat too often. And if they got the buffet flying around their territory and they can nab a, a, a bird a week, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll gladly stay there. Uh, in, in the dead of winter, um, I don't let my birds out at all unless uh, we don't have any snow on the ground. And I'm trying to do some early development stuff with puppies. I got a, a, a few birds that I'll let out, but there's no law flying and there's no road training. Um, so when we're talking about breeding season, again, how many birds do you need? How many birds can you breed? How many birds should you breed? These are things that we want to be thinking about. And again, I always feel people never have enough pigeons. Um, you can always use them um, uh, to, you know, through the shot for, uh, uh, you know, prior to your hunting season. If you're feeling your populations are high and you had a good breeding season and your hawk, uh, uh, <clears throat> the number of pigeons that, that the hawks killed uh, were not that many. Um, but uh, you can't you can't use the birds if you don't have them. And I, I strongly recommend that if you're thinking like if you got one dog or two dogs, um, I definitely would not have less than a dozen pigeons. I'd recommend two dozen pigeons. Yes, you have to feed them. Um, but uh, by the same token, uh, all this time and energy that you put in to um, making the loft, feeding the birds, getting them trained and road trained, um, and and it comes out an investment, and it's ultimately for everybody listening to this podcast, it comes out an investment for your bird dog. Um, so the last thing that you want to do is have this great setup, have a, a a handful of pigeons, be really excited, and a hawk that is a lot smarter than you are could wipe you out in a couple days if a week or two. So um, you really want to make sure that you that you have the bird numbers there. So your pup um, is not going to get shortchanged in your, you know, master plan. Uh, that's one of the biggest pieces of advice I could give you, regardless of what kind of pigeon setup you have, is you probably need more pigeons than you have if you want to guarantee that uh, you're going to have enough birds for your puppy throughout its development leading into its first hunting season. So keep that in mind. Again, I... Um, uh, whether you're taking care of one dozen pigeons or two dozen pigeons, if you have the adequate amount of space, um, it doesn't take any more time to take care of those number of birds. Uh, and that's really important to process, digest, and I hope you take advantage of that. Uh, as far as size and spacing, uh, pigeons uh, can fit comfortably and healthy um, in a 4 by 8 section. Uh, absolutely have no reservations about putting up to 30 birds in there as young birds. Um, you know, if they're getting out more days than not for loft flying and road training and they have a nice screen box they can get in and they're going to be sitting out in that screen box a lot on nice days, even, even rainy days, just take baths and stuff. They'll, they'll be out there. So they'll be getting that air and with that good loft setup, that's totally fine. I've put far more than there in there, uh, for my race teams and they race competitively. They're healthy as can be. You just can't have them locked up, boxed up no ventilation, not getting out, not cleaning them and having a poor diet uh, and and all of that can really hurt you. Um, okay, so as far as breeding, uh, just the general life cycle and the process, 
I do like to pair up my birds um, uh, over the winter months where I'll take them on the warmer days and I'll lock them in a nest box or I often I'll lock the hen inside a cock's nest box. I'm looking from a racing standpoint to breed or mate certain uh, pairs of birds together just like we would our racehorses and our and our hunting dogs for performance and bloodlines and such. Um, so you'll see the body language that indicates uh, that uh, you know they're making a love connection and you can gradually work uh, closer to putting them together. You got to be careful with locking the cock in the in a nest box with a hen that they're unfamiliar with because sometimes uh, the cockbirds can be very aggressive and uh, the hens can get beat up in a very short period of time. You don't want to throw them in there for a couple hours and just turn a blind eye because that hen could literally lose an eye, get pecked on the back of her head right down to her skull. And uh, these uh, gruesome things are realities that happen uh, in the pigeon game, in the pigeon world a lot, if you're not uh, diligent and being responsible and, and watching after your birds. So um, I'll do that periodically, maybe once a week or twice a week, you know, um, and then what that does is, you know, let's call that the pre-mating process. When we roll around to February, pretty much all I got to do is open up all the nest boxes, throw all the hens over into the cock section, and they're all mated up already. So pretty much um, seven to 10 days after I put them together, uh, they're going to come down on eggs. Now, pigeons lay two eggs in a clutch, and they lay them a day apart. So for example, if we're on day seven to 10, and that hen is sitting on the nest at night, um, what will happen is um, she'll usually lay that first egg late afternoon to early evening. And that's on Monday night, we're saying. Now, if we're in a place in the country where the low temperature is going to be below 52 degrees, and you're doing this for the sake of making babies, you want to have a wooden egg supply that you can get in any one of these uh, um, pigeon supply stores I mentioned, and you're going to swap out that egg after it's been laid and while it's still at least lukewarm, and you're going to put a wooden egg under there and bring the other egg in the house, and you're going to put it in a little empty egg carton or some soft uh, bottom container, then come on... Wednesday uh, afternoon, normally it's early to mid-afternoon, they would lay the second egg. So again, the first egg is laid on late Monday afternoon to early evening Monday after, uh, early evening on Monday. Then the second egg is laid on uh, Wednesday early afternoon to mid-afternoon. So sometime if you're working during the day, you go home from work, you go out there, there'll be a second egg there. At that point in time is when the hen starts to incubate the eggs officially. Now, real nesty hens or older hens, they'll lay that first egg, and when it's cold, they'll kind of hover over it and not really incubate it, but prevent it from becoming sterile. Because again, if it drops below 52 degrees, that egg uh, is no longer um, uh, viable. So for the sake of ensuring um, viability, again, I bring that first egg in the house and return it um, after the hen has laid her second egg, I take out the wooden egg and put that egg back. Uh, you can write with just a number two pencil on the egg if you have a lot of hens. Often, if you've done this pre-mating um, and you don't have your breeding uh, section too overcrowded, um, you'll have a lot of the birds, a lot of the hens will drop their, their eggs uh, right around the same time. It's not uncommon. You know, if I have 
16 pairs of breeders um, for 10 of them to come down one night and then the other six pair to come down the following night or the night after um, with this pre-mating process and not putting together when it's zero degrees outside. That means a lot too. Um, so they're just more active and sexually active um, if it's uh, a little bit uh, warmer. So knowing that it's a seven to 10 day process for these birds to come down on eggs, knowing that you're going to pull that first egg and put it back, uh, back in after the second egg is laid, let's just say that puts you around day 10, 10 to 12, right? Um, look at your two week forecast uh, if you live in the northern part of the country. And, you know, if you're going to be getting walloped with a major cold snap, um, you know, you might consider um, uh, holding off on putting your birds together for another week or two um, just to further ensure that in terms of when you're catching these eggs and what your work schedule is and how often you're in your coop and checking for eggs, uh, that you're able to catch these eggs and they're going to be good because, you know, you could easily, if, if the if the weather is going to dictate whether or not you got one or two fertile eggs, therefore one or two babies in that nest, and the nesting process, uh, you know, takes a number of weeks before the hen's going to lay a, uh, her next clutch of eggs, you know, you, you might be significantly reducing the number of babies you have when all you had to do was wait a week or two and you'd end up in the same position, you know, in the long run uh, if you, you know, if you had all those eggs that uh, ended up being fertile. So that's something that you want to be thinking about. And again, if the further north you live, um, you know, I would say there's nothing wrong with putting your birds together, uh, you know, mid-March, you know, especially if you kind of think of it as how long do you have snow on the ground um, and you could put your birds together a little bit later uh, the other thing that that happens is, you know, again, we have hawks. We always have hawks year round, um, you know, our, our native hawks, our nesting hawks. Um, but the, the later you can let your pigeons out to fly about, the better. Um, and you generally want to, um, as soon as they're out of the nest and you put them in the, in the young bird section, that middle section, as I described, that coop, as soon as they're flying from the floor on their own up to their perches, um, that's when I put a screen box on the landing board in front of their window. So during the day, they can just go in and out, get oriented, get, you know, figure out their little GPS uh, data in their brain with the iron deposits in their brain that helps them navigate and they're mapping. And so that pigeon is becoming a homing pigeon and becoming familiar uh, with where its home is at, um, but not being fully free to fly around yet. And I'll keep them locked in that uh, screen box uh, and their section uh, for uh, usually uh, two plus weeks, preferably, um, before I take that screen box off. Um, and this is for the be the first round of young ones. So uh, jumping back to uh, now you have these two eggs the hen has sat down on and has started to incubate from the laying of the second egg. Now, when you have that, um, it takes 18, ba 18 days to incubate those eggs to hatch, and they will hatch on the same day. Um, sometimes, uh, depending, I have seen them hatch as late as day 20, but typically, like clockwork, 99% of the time, they hatch on day 18. Now, what you want to do, and what you, I'm sorry, what you could do is um, you can candle these eggs just to the sunlight. So you get a nice sunny day. 
um, usually by day uh, seven um, or eight, you should be very able to see that those eggs are filled and there's a baby uh, pigeon growing inside those eggs by holding up to the light. And if you take that egg, just you don't want to be picking it up often, but if you take an egg uh, that was uh, laid or just the one that you pulled out that first egg and hold it up um, to a light bulb in your house, you know, or if the sun's out, um, you'll be able to see that yolk very clearly. Whereas when it's fertile, um, it's very easy to candle them uh, holding up to a light bulb or on a bright day to the sun. Um, I don't even need to do that now. I just look and you can see that they're dark and that they're filled and that they're viable. Um, so you can check that, but I wouldn't check that really past day eight or nine um, because once you get to day 10 or 12, those those the last three to four days, there's not a lot of egg movement um, because the baby's starting to peck out of the eggshell and you don't want to be moving it because uh, it might not have enough energy to be turning around and pecking another hole. So check it maybe between day seven and eight um, if you want to check. Um, and if they're no good at that point, the hens had a week to rest. You can throw out both those eggs. Um, the cockbird will start driving the hen again for eggs and, you know, in seven the 14 days probably, uh, that hen will come down on eggs again and repeat that process. Um, generally speaking, now sometimes uh, uh, babies die inside the egg. Sometimes it's just uh, autosomal and that can happen. Other times, you know, uh, you might have uh, an issue with uh, paratyphoid or salmonella um, that affects uh, hatch rate sometimes. If you see that's happening a lot, then that would be a big concern of mine. Um, but uh, in general, um, you know, if the eggs haven't hatched, whether they were just infertile or a baby died in there, uh, by day 20, most pigeons are leaving those eggs cold and walking away and they're starting the, the reproductive process over again um, around day 20 or so. So keep that in mind, but certainly write all this down on, on a calendar so you're savvy to what to expect. Um, pigeons grow real quick. Um, they pretty much are ready to leave the nest at 28 days. Some develop a little bit faster than others. Um, so, you know, I might have some that end up staying in there, you know, for 30 to 33 days, but usually 28 days, um, you can, uh, usually remove them. Uh, I have, uh, they call them little galley pots, these little ceramic pots that you can put some water and food inside the nest box. So they can start to learn to eat um, in there because often they'll go out onto the perch of the nest box and they'll fall down and they uh, can't get back up. Uh, and uh, breeding birds can be really territorial, particularly the cock birds. So the cock birds that have the lower nest boxes can really beat the heck out of the babies. So it's always good. Have like a, a two by two uh, foot piece of plywood that's kind of lifted up with a, a two by four um, along one side. So it's making like this really small lean to, um, and that will allow babies to crawl under it um, and get protection from the cockbirds that are gonna be pecking in, in the head constantly. And again, can cause a lot of physical trauma. If it's going to be problematic that babies are jumping out of the nest um, onto the floor um, and you're having to put them back up into the nest box, that's usually happening when they're over three weeks old. So that last week, you know, or so um, 
can be a little problematic. But if you check under the wing, you know, we say, you know, uh, we're looking to see if they're quote unquote wet under the wing. We're looking for all their pin feathers to be mostly or fully in um, before we would take them and put them into the young bird section. But if they're um, live up uh, in one of the higher nest boxes and they're constantly jumping down, you might just want to move them over um, uh, to the young bird section. And, you know, you can just dunk their beaks every day, twice a day. And if they're not drinking, um, generally they'll look kind of dopey. Their uh, birds blink very quickly. So if you got a bird that's kind of blinking slowly, you know, might be a little more puffed up. Uh, that's also an indication that they're probably not getting their nutrition. Um, but again, all the more reason why I like to put these little galley pots in, uh, in the nest boxes so they learn to drink any grain uh, on their own. So by the time uh, I'm taking them out of their nest box, between this 28-day uh, and 33-day age bracket, uh, they're in really great shape and uh, minimal, minimal work for me and they figure it out and they're, they do just fine. The babies that uh, grow up on the lower nest boxes where they can kind of run around the floor and hop back up, they're usually the bigger, plumper ones, you know, just more savvy because they can evade the other cockbirds that are being territorial with the new bird on the block, you know, by chasing them right back up into their nest boxes. So they adapt well. But having that like two foot by two foot piece of plywood uh, up on end, like a little lean to that the little the babies can get on, but the big cockbirds can't. Uh, can really save uh, your babies a lot of stress and physical trauma sometimes. Uh, so I, I would recommend that. Um, as far as <clears throat> if you're going to ban your birds, which I would always recommend, certainly you can put the snap-on bands, but you can buy uh, whether they're uh, uh, AU or IF bands, American uh, uh, Racing Pigeon Union or the International Federation of Racing Pigeons. Um, you know, you can... Um, uh, order them through a lot of these uh, supply uh, uh, places online. And that's uh, that's just a good way to ID your birds. Obviously, if you're racing them, um, uh, which is a fantastic hobby, but very, very time-consuming and is very challenging to uh, do right by your bird dog um, and, uh, and by your racing pigeons in that respect. But uh, nonetheless, it allows you to keep track and uh, breeding records as well um, for... Uh, for your race birds, for your homing pigeons, for your uh, bird dog uh, pigeons that you're using for the training. That usually gets done uh, between five to seven days of age, um, where the three forward toes you would put forward and the one hind toe you would pull back up against the bird's leg. You would slide that band over those three toes and then reach back through and pull that hind uh, toe back through. So now the band is uh, sitting on top of it, which would basically be like its, its wrist joint um, on the leg itself with all the toes out below the band. Um, that is uh, a, a critical age to make it really easy to put on. If the baby's a little small, you might want to go back and just check on it the next uh, two days to make sure that the band didn't fall off. Uh, <clears throat> often what will happen is the opposite. You forget to ban the birds and I'm like oh no I got to go back out there and figure out how to get uh, this band on and it can be a little difficult uh, sometimes but what I'll do is uh, I'll, I'll have a paper towel and I'll douse it with some uh, olive oil um, and I'll just get that bird's whole foot um, uh, covered in olive oil 
or if you want to do it like the old timers uh, uh, do it in the pigeon game is we just spit on the foot. But when it's a really tight fit and uh, you miss this bird by like four or five days um, and you're trying to do this on a 10 day old pigeon, uh, it can get pretty dicey, but you want to make those toes as lubricated as possible. So I'll put that olive oil on it and then I'll kind of take my t-shirt and once I got those three toes pulled through and I got to now pull that rear toe back through that really tight band, um, I'll, I'll use my clean dry t-shirt to try to pull that last hind toe out and forward, which can be very tricky, um, but that can happen. Or if you're stressed over it, that kind of situation. Uh, you can definitely um, just put a snap-on band on on that pair of birds if you need to, and you can buy numbered numbered bands and um, you know resolve that problem that way uh, if you would like to as well. So once we got the young birds into the young bird section, um, uh, again, and they're starting to fly in the perches, they get on the screen box, they're out there for a couple weeks before we start to let them out. The frequency of how often I let them out has everything to do with the time of year it is because of the hawks. Um, you know, the the hawks are going to really know how to work your birds to get their meal. Um, so I like to be out there um, a little bit anyway, try to have some type of presence. Um, uh, I, I really uh, try not to really let birds out too much before um, like April 1st, if I can help it. Uh, even if that means they're a little bit older um, than I would like and more like the six to eight week mark. Um, it's nice to be able to have them not really be able to fly that much. To So they are on the landing board, they jump up on the roof of the coop, they go down the ground, maybe they, they start to fly out a little bit, but they fly right back down to the coop and they're just getting really comfortable with being home. So if during that time they're getting nailed by hawks, um, obviously that makes them much more jumpy and it's just a reality that you're going to have to deal with it. It's part of the pigeon game. It's it's part of having birds, um, and uh, the fact that they're uh, um, you know on the on the on the bottom of that food pyramid um, uh, is just uh, uh, what we what we deal with. So to try to protect your birds, um, you know, uh, timing of when you're letting them out in the early days that screen box, you know, and then you get, you get later in the spring while there's always hawks around, you're going to deal with a lot less hawks, um, in June and July than you are from November around through May, um, at least in the Northeast and the Northern part of the country. So, you know, set yourself up for success that way in terms of your timetable for having your babies. Now, normally, I'll, I'll get um, up to three rounds of babies off of my pigeons. Um, I like to put uh, a second nest bowl in the nest box, usually when the uh, present clutch of babies is uh, between two to three weeks old. I'll monitor the hen's behavior and kind of see if the cockbird has been driving her for eggs, and if so... She's starting to hang close to the nest again, which means probably she's going to be dropping an egg soon. So I'll have a second nest bowl there um, because what will happen is if you only have one nest bowl and the other two babies are sitting in it, that egg is going to roll out and uh, you might lose that egg. Um, and then now you're stuck with one egg and you have to let her sit on it to give her a rest for two weeks. And then you're going to take the um, uh, egg and throw it away maybe so you can get two babies in that round again. So the, to just keep your timetable and your maximum uh, egg uh, viability as high as possible, 
put a second nest ball in there. Um, that'll go a long way uh, and do so when you start to see the cock that was driving that hen while they have their first round of babies now have that hen sitting in the bo- sitting inside the bowl uh, for more hours during the day. That makes a, that's a visual indicator to you that you need that second nest bowl. So when you have um, uh, the next round, um, you can kind of keep up that timetable. Obviously, if you're getting later in your season now, um, in terms of your calendar season, you don't have to bring in the uh, first egg out of habit just because my birds are very high value to me in terms of these breedings and pairings that I have. I, I pretty much always bring that first egg in the house, even if the indoor temperature and outside temperature are the same. Um, uh, just uh, <clears throat> leaving no stone unturned and in- ensuring that I'm going to be getting the most babies that I can out of these pairs when I want them to. So normally I'll have the the birds together um, uh, for breeding uh, in my lofts between February and uh, uh, through June. And that will give me three plus rounds of birds, you know, so figure, you know, if everything goes well, you're talking six babies out of each pair. So in a good breeding season, and there are good and bad breeding seasons, sometimes like you you breed a, a plethora of pigeons, uh, the hawk uh, kills are, are low on your birds for that year. And, um, you know, you end the season almost with as many as you started. Other years, you lose almost every one, you know, um, whether it's from uh, just a bad breeding season, hawk kills, uh, losing them in races, training tosses gone bad. You know, there's, there's, you know, no shortage of reasons as to what can make a pigeon man depressed. That's for sure. Um, But, uh, you know, do your calculations, do your math. Okay, I'm putting them together in February. Okay, I'm going to follow this outline to a T and I have this number of pairs. So, you know, six times that number of pairs is how many pigeons I could potentially have. And I probably won't have quite that many. So if you look at it that way, um, you'll kind of know where you stand. And like I said, figure you want a lot more um, than uh, than you than you think you're going to need, um, and uh, yeah, that's that's kind of leading up through to the summertime. Now I will vaccinate my young birds. Um, I'm going to vaccinate my young birds uh, when they first come out of the nest, um, or what I like to do is each time I get my round out of the nest. So if I'm talking over like a two week period of time. Um, and then I know that I'm going to have that whole first round of young birds, um, out of the breeding section into the young bird section. Then that's when I'll vaccinate for the paramyxovirus. And then the week later, I'll do it for the salmonella or paratyphoid and so on as the, uh, particular vaccine you're using recommends in terms of initial loading doses. Um, and then again, I'll vaccinate them again in November, um, to give them that, that booster, um, so keep that in mind in terms of your health plan. That's that's really critical. Um, year-round, I do like to give uh, a particular product that I use is Dr. Pigeon's Ultimate Elixir. Sounds really fancy and Superman-like for pigeons. And it is. It's a great supplement. It's a water supplement. I like giving pigeon vitamins uh, in the water um, rather than on the feed, um, especially for most of you pigeon uh, people that are doing this strictly for the sake of training your bird dogs, um, 
you know, you're going to probably be feeding chicken feed of some sort, you know, um, and that's not necessarily the most nutritious stuff for pigeons. Um, if you handle a serious, uh, uh, competitive, uh, racing pigeon flyers, pigeons that are well pedigreed, well taken care of, well trained and well fed, uh, and have all their nutritional requirements met. And then you go and you handle the average bird dog trainer guys, pigeons that just have them for the sake of training out in the back training fields. You're going to feel a big difference between those two types of pigeons. Um, it's uh, your barn pigeon compared to um, your 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 bodybuilding uh, marathon Olympian type pigeons. Uh, it's quite amazing the the muscle mass uh, uh, difference uh, between those two birds. So while you might not need the Olympian pigeon um, to train your bird dog, um, depending upon your view on how to take care of animals and birds in general, um, and to what extent you're going to demand performance out of your pigeons. Um, while I demand hundreds of miles out of my pigeons, um, you know, if you want your, if you want to be able to train your bird dog, you know, 20 to 60 miles away, uh, you want to make sure that you're giving your pigeon the nutritional requirements to do that, depending upon how frequently you're demanding that. So there's proper road training that gets involved, um, that you want to start to do. Now, um, in the springtime, if you are a pigeon racer, you're going to be racing April, May, and June, uh, your old birds, which are birds that were born a previous calendar year. So they're going to be one year old uh, to as old as you want to race them. Typically, we don't race them much past five or so um, because if they're still on the team and doing really well, they would be uh, um, a breeder by that point. So when we look at uh, the flow of things, usually by late June to the first half of July, you want to be getting your young birds on the road for training if you're going to be training um, away from your home property. And the best judge to, to, or the best way to determine if you're ready for that or not is going to be um, first you settled them in the screen box, then you took the screen box off. Um, then they started to fly around all over the place like kamikaze pilots. Uh, and then they start to fly together in what we call stock where they're all in unison. Um, and then they're flying around and then they're coming down together and then they're flying up again and they're flying down together and then they're flying around and they're flying around for 20, 30, 40 minutes, an hour and they disappear and they're gone. Uh, we in the pigeon world call that mapping or routing. They're learning to use their navigation abilities. They disappear um, and they're flying out away from home, checking out the sites, learning to navigate, and then they come back. <clears throat> and then you can breathe again because all your hard work that you've done <laughs> just returned to the loft. Um, I like them to be routing for a good two or three weeks before I take them up the road. Now, generally, when I go up the road, uh, as I've gotten older, I've become more conservative. But I can tell you, being the six-year-old boy hanging out with a bunch of 90-year-old pigeon guys from the Bronx and Brooklyn, um, they would go and take them 20 to 40 miles on their first training toss, um, air miles, uh, up the highway um, without reservation, 
and uh, let them go, and they come home. The key ingredient there to that kind of distance is ensuring <clears throat> that, the, that the birds have been routing very well. And pretty much however long they're flying, if they're flying for an hour, you know they can fly for two or three hours. The big question is, can they navigate? Um, so that, that becomes an important thing. So I've had, um, uh, you know, I've, I've raised birds my entire life. So I've had many, many seasons, more in the earlier seasons when I was raising with my grandfather that followed more of that uh, old, uh, <laughs> old, 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 tough pigeon city guy uh, uh, way of uh, training. Uh, but they made sure that the birds were ready for it. But I've been much more conservative. And today, most training programs are much more conservative where they bring them a mile or two down the road. And then you'll uh, let them go. Uh, you'll want them to be sitting there for five minutes, 10 minutes, let them get oriented, get settled. Uh, it's not a bad idea prior to crating them up and bringing them there, of crating them, letting them hang out in crates in the yard, and then bringing them back to the coop or just letting them go in the yard just for the sake of them getting comfortable in the crate. That can minimize this, the stress and therefore make the training process uh, theoretically uh, a little more smooth. But you get them, whether it's one two miles or five miles up the road for the first training toss. They're settled there. The weather is beautiful. It's first thing in the morning. You can see the sun just cracking up, and that's when you let them go. Make sure you're free of uh, close tree lines and power lines. Uh, don't be creating all these problems uh, for them before they even get started, and obviously clear of the road. <clears throat> so you let them go. You drive home. Uh, if you're the luckiest guy in the world, they beat you home. Uh, and otherwise, those first several tosses can be nerve-wracking. Uh, whether it's one mile or 20 miles, you know, it might take them several hours to get home. Hopefully, they come home together. Um, if they come home all broken up, that might mean like a hawk had gotten them, you know, or you just got uh, two big different age groups that are that are up in the air. Speaking of age groups... Uh, always a good general rule of thumb, assuming that they're flying well. Uh, usually those birds, the 10 innermost flight feathers on the bird's wing um, are going to be molted one at a time, assuming they're healthy. And the first uh, two feathers uh, uh, on their wing, uh, once they've molted that out, that's always a good say, okay, this bird's totally ready to be trained. It's been flying with everybody, and it's and it's that mature and it's that healthy. Um, so you might be, you're going to be potentially, you know, your last round of birds. You you might have to play catch up a little bit, which won't take long at all. But you'll have to play catch up a little bit with them. So your first and second round of birds, very often you can start training together. Um, if we're talking about this this timeline that I've been describing uh, in this podcast. Um, but that last round of birds, you might have to wait a little bit. Sure, not molting anything, but flying, can they do it? Yes, but they're going to be the first bird, the first babies to not come home if you end up having a really bad toss because they're just not strong enough. So again, set yourself and your pigeons up for success always. So you got this first uh, early in the day toss. Don't do it after work. Yes, they can do it. Yes, they're tough. But why do it? Set the birds up for success. So do it in the morning before work or on your day off when the weather is great, the humidity isn't terrible. It's not going to be 100 degrees that day, all right? You know, set them up. If it's going to be 
that bad in terms of weather, keep them locked up or just do some loft flying again. Wait for that nice weather day um, and do it early so they have all day to get home and figure it out. Uh, but once you get rolling, generally you can always double the distance and feel exceptionally comfortable with that. So whether it's one mile or five miles, if they're beating you home or arriving when you're getting home, don't hesitate to jump them out further. Um, but, you know, the demand that you put on the birds, uh, you just have to look at how far away are going to be your training locations when you're working your bird dogs. You know, for, for me, we have a family farm that's about an hour drive from my place. Uh, that's about a 40 air mile toss. Um, now, racing them, I train them out as far as 60 miles, and then they actually race 100 to 600 miles. But in general, the young birds that race from 100 to 350 miles in the fall, in the summertime, I'm routinely taking them up to 60 miles. So for me to go 40 miles away with my 60 pigeons uh, that are all young birds um, and well-conditioned to do that distance, I can easily work my whole arsenal of bird dogs um, and have them fly back home throughout the day, um, you know, in uh, groups of four to six at a time, depending upon what the launcher situation is in the training setup. But uh, take your time and make sure that they're doing a good job um, and uh, you shouldn't have an issue. Think about weather, think about humidity, think about uh, wind direction and uh, all those things play a huge role. Well, that's a pretty detailed overview of your entire pigeon season from start to finish from your quiet period, all the way up to and through to when you would start using them to train your bird dogs off property and working with them up to the dog's first hunting season or just in the off season in general if you have a mature dog. After the initial investment, uh, pigeons are really economical. Once you got the coop, once you got the birds and you got your setup and you know your system, uh, you really can't beat the economics of pigeons. The other thing that I love about pigeons, uh, in regards to the economic department, I have a bird that's helped me train over 70 bird dogs. I got a bunch of birds that trained dozens and dozens. Obviously, they have to be able to evade the hawks and just have a stroke of luck in that respect as well. But there's certainly no quail likely that's done that or, or chucker or, or pheasant. If they're very well flight conditioned and all the training that I've talked about does that, that's also another huge plus. I don't dizzy pigeons. I always use them in launchers or a manual foot trap. Maybe I got a string attached to it for the first five or ten birds. But after that, I use launchers. And those birds are shot up in the air and they're gone. Uh, there's none of this flopping down into the field, whether it's a dizzied bird or just a poorly raised, pen-raised bird. That's a very different uh, scenario. So I love pigeons for that uh, in that respect as well. Um so when you look at all of uh, this information, take it in, listen to this multiple times. We're going to talk more about pigeons in the future. For those of you that might be interested, you can visit my Vimeo On Demand series, which has a link on my website, paintriverlewellens.com, or you can go directly to Vimeo On Demand and type in Paint River Llewellyn's. I have a handful of episodes on pigeons specifically that you can scroll down through the long list of episodes and find those episodes that are specifically for pigeons, which also include uh, the loft design and setup that I described and articulated, 
It also includes um, uh, some other information that uh, we talked about here, but just gives you some visuals on it, including how to handle the birds properly uh, in hand. If you would like to hear more information about pigeons in a future podcast episode, you can email me at settertalk at gmail.com. So I hope you guys got a lot out of today. Um, I hope your setter's sitting right, right alongside you and saying, yeah, yeah, let's get pigeons. I think this is a great idea. Um, and uh, I look forward to sharing more information on pigeons with you in the future. As always, thanks for listening, everyone. This is Setter Talk. I'm your host, Kyle Warren. And until next time, give your setter a scratch on the head for me. Have a great day. Thank you.